0: The most important thing that we learned about Hanukkah that we'll start is that when we light our candles on Hanukkah, is to sit by the candles and meditate on them. This might sound simple, but most people don't do that. Most people get involved in all kinds of other things. <clears throat> and they, they do the mitzvah and they like the candles, but they don't take advantage of that half an hour or hour or whatever and actually sit by their candles and receive all of the spiritual bounty that it's possible to receive when looking at the, the candles of Hanukkah. And we started discussing how the original light of creation on the first day, that according to Rashi, the Midrash was hidden away to the, for the righteous in the future time. <clears throat> we said that this was a spiritual light. A, not that it wasn't at all a physical light, as we'll see when we, we get to the science part tonight, but it was basically a spiritual light and this spiritual light was hidden and then we discussed where it was hidden and so we said it's hidden in torah that when we learn torah with a full concentration full heart and soul so we contact us spiritual, infinite light. It was hidden in the Menorah in the Temple, it's hidden in Shabbos, and in the Hanukkiah. So That's how we came to this, because the, the lights of, of Hanukkah, they represent <coughs> uh, uh, both a physical and a purely spiritual light. A finite light and an infinite light. And what we mentioned last week, and we're going to spend a good amount of time on today, is we mentioned that the sages, when they discussed light in many, many different contexts, there's there's always something paradoxical about light and there's always something that has to do with opposites and I only just mentioned it last week but this week we're going to actually get into it last week it was in the context that this light of Hanukkah is both represents a physical light the the light of the victory over the Greeks the light of redemption The light of hope and joy, but in a deeper sense, it represents this infinite light of God. So, we're going to start with looking at a number of different paradoxes about light. And then what we're going to do is we're going to try to understand from a Kabbalistic point of view, what is so paradoxical about light? And then we're going to look at what science, modern physics says about light. And what we're going to see is that the sages and the Kabbalists were way ahead of modern physics. They didn't have the same language, but they intuited this paradoxical nature of light and we'll see that science in a sense confirms uh, what the sages said and then time allowing we're going to take everything that we've learned tonight and we're going to see how the three letters of light Aleph, vav and resh represent everything we just learned. Because the idea is, when it says, Vayomer Yehi Or, Va yehi Or, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So according to tradition, light is an Aleph, Vav, and Resh. That is what light is. But unless you understand what the olive Vav, and Resh are, then that doesn't mean anything. So we're going to delve into a little bit what the olive Vav, and Resh mean in relationship to light. And it's it's truly amazing how everything we're going to learn tonight can be seen in these three letters. So let's start at the beginning. What are these what's this paradox that we're talking about? So part of the paradox of light is that there seems to be a a vibration of light between being hidden and being revealed. And I'm going to point out four or five different midrashim that all have the same thing. So the first we mentioned already, the first day of creation. the that light was revealed, and we said it was revealed according to the Middash for 36 hours, which is represented by the 36 lights of Hanukkah. One plus two plus three plus four, the whole eight nights equals 36. That's one of the hints that this hidden light is revealed in the Hanukkah. And then it was hidden away. So if that was the only midrash that we, we had this theme of light being revealed and then hidden, so we wouldn't, we wouldn't think much about it. But there's another midrash that says that when a fetus is in its mother's womb, a, an angel comes and teaches it the whole Torah, And the Midrash says, and there's a candle lit. However, we understand that in the womb. And then right before the baby is born, so probably everyone knows this, the angel touches us here, and we forget everything. So again, we have the whole Torah, which is called light in, in, in the Tanakh. Torah is called light, Torah-or. you have many yeshiva called Torah-or because of this Pasuk. But then it's hidden away. But we'll see the same thing. It, it, it doesn't say it was taken away. It, it says that we forget, but then everyone asks, well, if we forget, so why were we taught in the first place? Doesn't make sense. So the answer is, we don't totally forget. In fact, it's there all the time. It's just on the surface that we don't remember. So that's why many times with with, uh, Balchuvas that when they get introduced to certain concepts, it's like a light bulb goes off and it's like, I knew that. Or, this, this is so familiar. Or, like, you know, you keep your first Shabbos, and it's like, wow, I remember this. I remember this. And that's why it resonates so deeply, because it's there all the time. So in the minute it says we forget, it doesn't mean to totally forget. It just means consciously forget. Okay, another example, we <clears> will <throat> see the same paradigm played over and over again. Remember when Moshe comes down from the mountain with the second tablet, and it says that his, his face was shining, that the people were afraid to look at him. They were afraid to look at him. He was like radiating. And the Torah says, carne or. Now, which translated is beams of light. But interestingly enough, the word for or is. is... Wait, wait, one second. Is your homage um,
1: available? Shmote, oh right?
0: Yeah, it's in, um,
1: that <coughs> he No, no,
0: okay. no, 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 no,
1: no, Okay,
0: pardon me for one second. no, no,
1: We need your gematria word search on the computer. (laughs) Yes, we do. (laughs) From our website. We
0: do, actually. If
1: you haven't checked it out yet, take a look at it. You can type in any word into the search window, and it'll give you the gematria and the passive that the word occurs in, Hmm. and and I'll compare it with other words that say gematria. One of our students wrote the program, David Comer. How do you spell it? Oh, word? okay. I'm sorry? I'm sorry? The carne, the
0: carne order, Kuf, you? Resh, nun Yud. So in the Torah, it's spelled with an ayin. Oh. Ayin, Vav, Resh. Which means... Um, uh,
1: Karan, or Panav. Right, that's a specific
0: word. Right, with, with, an, with an ayin, though.
1: The skin of his face, Raig, <coughs>
0: Right. So the word for skin is with an ayin. Nonetheless, the commentaries all understand that it was beams of light. So because it's written as like beams of like horns,
1: Horns, so that's where
0: you get the Michelangelo. (laughs) Because in the King James, it was like he had horns. Mm -hmm. But the commentary is understood because the ayin and the vav, kabbalistically, can, are, can always be exchanged. The ayin and the aleph? Excuse me, the ayin and the aleph. So the word for light, or, sounds the same as or, which means skin. So just to finish this and we'll see the, the antecedent to this. That <clears throat> so, the people were afraid to look at him. So, what did they do? Moshe made a like a, a veil, and from that time on, he wore it over his face for the rest of the 40 years, and only when he would be speaking to the people, he would. He would, uh, he would reveal himself. <coughs> so, here again, we have a moshe comes down revealing light, but then he has to hide it away. Because it was too strong. Now, now that we've introduced this idea that or with an iron and or with an aleph sound the same, but they mean differently, the first place this appears is with Adam and Eve. After they eat from the tree, so it says God made for them garments of ore with an iron which meant leather skins to wear. And the Kabbalah explains what happened here was that before they ate from the tree, Adam and Eve had what we will call light bodies. They had bodies of light. And we have this in Havdalah. When we look at, at the light in our fingernails, so one of the reasons we're told is that's to remind us that we once had, our whole body was reflective, like our fingernails. It, it reflected light. And because of the sin, They exchanged bodies of light with an aleph for bodies of skin. So here we have another example where Adam and Eve had light bodies, but then it was hidden away. Or in this case, yeah, hidden away. Because as we look again, there's still a little bit there. If you've ever, if you ever like seen the face of a, a, a real tzaddik, so their faces are, are, are beaming light. They're they're beaming. So there's still that that sense to it.
1: So there's a parallel with this week's parsha that Yaakov made uh, Yosef a kutenet. So the garment that uh, Aram and Chava received
0: a huh. Ah. Mm-hmm. I
1: don't know
0: what it means. Okay, last week we learned that the menorah that mm-hmm. shone in the temple, when they knew that the Babylonians were coming, they hid it away.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So you see, over and over again, there's this paradigm. Mm-hmm. We don't know what it means yet, right? But there's this... Uh, pattern that plays itself over and over. That light is revealed and hidden away. Now there's even like a higher level. See, this is like two stages. Revealed and then hidden. But in the ninth plague in Egypt was the plague of darkness. And It was, Rashi says, it was so dark, it was thick. The darkness was uh, tangibly, you could feel the darkness. And it was so thick that if you were standing up, you couldn't sit down. And if you were sitting down, you couldn't stand up. Those people were incapacitated by the... I don't have a better word, but the thickness of the darkness. But then the the verse says, but there was light in all of the Jewish houses. So what could be understood is that the same energy that manifests itself as darkness to the Egyptians manifests as light to the Jews. So now it's not two stages, it's the same energy, but one is experiencing it as darkness, and one is experiencing it as light. And we have a, a similar thing with the sun. The Prophet says that in, in, in the future, when, when the Mashiach comes, God will take the, uh, the protective shield away from the sun, and it will destroy the evil people and it will heal the good people the same energy and that we can see in also in modern science that the same energy that will go into a nuclear bomb that can destroy the world is the same energy that can cure certain cancers through laser same energy is being harnessed but in one it can destroy totally and one it can, it can heal so here we have the sense that you have light now has a stage of being revealed and hidden but there's also a level where it's the, it's the same thing, the same time Last week we learned a verse from Tehillim, where David Melech says to God, darkness to you is like light. From God's perspective, as it were, light and darkness, there's actually no difference. And there's one explanation that's born in Hasidut for the ninth plague that the darkness that the Egyptians felt, the reason that there was light in all of the Jews' houses, is because actually God shone an incredible light. But if you're not on the level to receive this light, then you, you experience it as darkness if it's too great for you, too spiritual, too pure, then you're going to receive it as the opposite. Blinded by
1: the light.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Blinded by the light. Just It would be the same experience if you turned off all the lights and you had a perfectly dark room if you're blinded by the light, so in the end the result will be the same. You can't see. You can't see. Okay, now the... And actually there are more. There are more, but we have a very limited time. There's, there's actually many more examples of the same paradigm, over and over and over again. Now, all of these not all of them, but most of the explanations are midrashim. In other words, the it wasn't like it's in the text that it's so clear that you have to explain light this way. But nonetheless, over and over and over again, the sages would explain light according to this paradox. And opposites. Now the one word where these ideas come together uh, in the strongest way is the word chashmal. Chashmal, we translate it today as electricity. It's a modern word that was used to name electricity, but we're going to see that whoever did that was right on. They were right on. So where do we learn? Where does chashma, the word, come from? It's mentioned in the vision of Ezekiel, Yecheskel, which is considered the uh, the most mystical part of the entire Tanakh. Yeah. How do you
1: spell chashma?
0: Uh, chet, uh-huh. shin, uh-huh. mem, la- lamed, Chash-mau. And this is the Torah for the first day of Shavuos. Why? is because the giving of the Torah was a mystical experience. It's like the phenomena that was happening was beyond this this world, beyond uh, normative ability of our senses to perceive. So the Haftorah, which is always connected to the... the whatever reading in the Torah is the vision of Ezekiel of the chariot where he describes this mystical vision of when the heavens opened up like they did at Mount Sinai and he envisioned all of the angels and this chariot and, and God and in that this word chashmal appears is that Yehezkel describes seeing an energy. Now, in most translations, Hashmal is translated as a, a blue color. That's why in if you have one of these uh, boxes of 64 crayons and there are eight different blues in there, one will be called Electrum. A type of blue is called Electrum. And it comes from chasma. That's why in many translations it, it says that Yeheskel saw a blue, um, tran- translucent light. But in Kabbalah, it's explained: it's an energy. It's a, it's an energy. In fact, it's an energy. It's a pre-creation energy. It's above time and space. So so what's so paradoxical? So the sages, when trying to understand and explain what this energy is, explain like this the word chashmal, the first syllable chash, means silent. Mal means to speak. So chashmal when you break down the root, means a speaking silence. Now that's pretty paradoxical. <laughs> because if it's speaking, it's not silence. If it's silent, it's not speaking. So it's called a speaking silence. Where do we see this energy or this pattern played out again? It's with eliel and Navi. When Eliyahu uh, escapes for his life, see, they were killing all of the prophets, and he escapes to the Sinai, and he actually goes to Har Sinai, and God appears to him in this very incredible sequence. Uh, It says that there was thunder and there was lightning. But God was not in the thunder and lightning. And then there was an earthquake. And God was not in the earthquake. And there was incredible winds. And God was not in the winds. And then Eliyahu heard a call de Mama a silent, this is a different way of saying Hashmah. Kol means a voice, to mama means silent, as like with Aron, Vayidom Aron, means Aron was silent. So he, I don't know if you can use the word hear, but he perceived a silent voice, and he goes outside because he knew that was God. And then God addresses him. So this is where we see this hashmal the silence and the speaking. Now the the sages said that it's also a type of angel. There's a type of angel that are called hashmal angels. And there it's not simultaneous. It's like our two-stage. They said sometimes they're speaking, and sometimes they're silent. But in the deeper sense, it means what Simon and Garfunkel got right, the sounds of silence. Remember that song? Right? So they captured it, (laughs) the sounds of silence. So we'll see, we'll take a little while to see why this word is so perfect for electricity. Because we're going to see scientifically how all these opposites that we're talking about and these paradoxes is what light is. Light is the biggest paradox in the physical world. So the word hashmal is perfect for, for electricity. Okay, now we're going to take what we've said. I'm change gears here and we're, we're going to want to understand what is it about light? Last week, we're not going to do it again, but we went around and I said, what's the first thing you think of when you hear light? And we got holiness, purity, godliness, uh, spirituality, the soul, goodness, joy, redemption, hope, and all kinds of other good things, everything good. So the, so the question is, when, what is it about light that has this universal, positive association? Now, in the simple understanding, we, just from our, our, our lives, if we, without light, I mean, and anyone should be blind and it's possible to live as a blind person. But for most of us, it's very hard to imagine a world without light. You take away a world without warmth, and we're finished. Right? You just move the sun back you know, half a million miles, and life would not be uh, possible on Earth. And nothing would grow. All vegetation needs light in order to grow. So life simply would not be possible without light. And from light comes warmth. But in a a deeper sense, why is it that when we think of godliness, we think about light, the light of God, I've seen the light.
1: Amen, brother.
0: <laughs> the, the proverbial light bulb goes off in our head when we have a new idea. When we're in a, a, a tough situation, we see the light at the end of the tunnel. And for people who've had near-death experiences, everyone reports on the this incredible light that they see. So, we want to understand why is light so associated with with godliness and spirituality? So the first way we can understand is a simple uh, comparison that just like light has no substance, you you can't like bottle it. You can't grab it. Yet it's all pervasive. In fact, the photon has no mass to it. it has no mass. So light is, in a sense, everywhere. And yet you can't, you, you can't put your finger on it. So we're told that's exactly how we experience God. That is everywhere. But but try to, like try to manifest that energy. In Kabbalah it's called mati veLo mati. He's found and he's not found. Or he's tangible, but he's not tangible. So light, in the most simple uh, parable, corresponds to the way we experience God. All... uh, Fills all worlds, but we don't, we don't, we can't grab onto it. Now, when we use the expression uh, spiritual light, what are we talking about? Because we use it all, especially when you learn Hasidus and Kabbalah. So constantly it talks about light, the light of God, the light of the soul, lights and vessels. In Kabbalah everything is lights and vessels. (coughs) So I'll give you just really a very simple definition it's a state of consciousness. When we talk about the light of God, the light of Torah, the light of the mitzvah, the light of the soul, (coughs) feeling light, experiencing light, what it means is that we've reached a certain level of consciousness, a state of consciousness. That is what spiritual light is, consciousness. And we're going to see later also how that plays itself out in modern quantum physics as well. And now we have a very mysterious thing here. If light is paradoxical. There's, there's something paradoxical about light and light is the closest
1: uh,
0: metaphor that we can use for God then it stands to reason that there must be something paradoxical about God that the light of God would be paradoxical so here we're getting to like very deep levels here and to be very honest we're not going to get into it extensively because it would take um, far more time than 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 we have but one of the, the most important things I learned from Ravitsak Ginsberg how uh, it was it, it, It created an entire paradigm shift in my understanding of life, Torah, and God. He said like this, he said, one would think that the more Torah that we learn, the clearer things would get, and the, the clearer idea we would have about God and life and all of that. He said it's not true. He said the more Torah you learn, the more paradoxical everything gets. Why? Because the essence of God is paradox.
1: What do you mean by that?
0: That's what we'll explain in the next short amount of time. <laughs> that's the paradox in itself, because we spend um, a lot of our spiritual energy trying to see the oneness of God. So how can you tell me that God is paradoxical? That seems like a contradiction in terms. It seems like an oxymoron. Ah, but that's the, that's the paradox itself. That in in Kabbalah, God is called the one who can hold opposites. So, for example, the word for heaven, that's what we conceptually perceive that God dwells, right, in heaven. The word for heaven is shemaim which is made up, really, of, you can divide it between the shin and the mayim is, of course, water. What does the shin stand for? Aish. So what is heaven? Heaven is where Aish and mayim can dwell in perfect peace. Two complete opposites that in this world, destroy each other. Water puts out fire, and fire makes water evaporate. So in this world, fire and water are opposites, but not in heaven. So you ask, well, so is Shemayim the epitome of paradox, or is it the epitome of oneness? Because fire and water are commingling. mingling it's the same thing, it's the same thing. That's why when Rebbe Akiva and his colleagues go into the Pardes, does everyone know the story? It's called Arba Shnifna Sula Pardes, it's the four that went into this mystical state of meditation where they were able to have what's called an aliyata an elevation of soul, Uh, transcend this world altogether and Rebbe Akiva said when you get to the place of pure marble don't say water water for those who speak untruths in that place will not be able to exist so what happened they reached this incredible vision of godliness. And because what they saw was so startlingly paradoxical, one went crazy, one died, one became a heretic, and only Revi Akiva went in and peace and out of peace. And that's what he meant. He said, don't say water, water. He said, because when you get to this place of pure marble, meaning a pure vision of the Shekhinah or God or divinity, you're going to be confronted with paradox. Should he have said Ishmael? What? Should he have said e? Oh <laughs> No, but what he was trying to say was, don't. You have to see through the paradox to the oneness that is animating the paradox. He says, don't say water, water, because if you say water, water, you're finished. Because the, the, the paradox will be so shocking that you won't be able to deal with it. And see, this is the truth of everything in the world we are confronted by a world of 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 plurality and and manifold expressions and we're hit with stimuli at, at, at such <laughs> enormous amounts at one time and our spiritual job is Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. It's all of this. is It's all one. Does that mean that it's not uh, pluralistic? It is. But it's one at the same time. What is a paradox? A paradox is when you have two opposite truths that under ordinary circumstances will cancel each other out or contradict each other totally but a paradox is that they, they can coexist at the same time that's what a paradox is a paradox is two two mutually exclusive concepts nonetheless can both be true now we have a beautiful example with Hanukkah have a beautiful example. I'm sure everyone's heard this, that Beit Shammai said we, the first night we should light eight candles, and then seven, and then six, five, all the way down to one. And Beit Hillel says we should light from one up to eight. So we'll ask, so which one is right? Ah. You might think, because we light from one to eight, that means that Hillel is right. <coughs> no, they're both right. We've chosen to follow to follow the way of Hillel. But what did the sages say about this type of machloket? Eilu ve'elu divra'elokim chayim. Now, can you have anything more opposite than from one to eight, or eight to one? It's like they're going in completely like... But the sage said, Eloh, Eloh Diva Elohim Chaim. They're both true. They're both right. They're both the words of God. But they're opposite. But they're both the words of God. The fact that, again, that we choose one of them to follow the halacha doesn't make the other one wrong doesn't make it wrong. It just means that for our state of consciousness in the world right now, this is the better one to follow. So along with this expression I already said about God, mati v'lo mati. He's found and he's not found. So there's another one that we learned with in relationship with Moshe. Rashi brings us when when God reveals the thirteen uh, aspects of compassion. So it, it, God says there is a place with me. There is a place with me, and I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. And I will pass before you, and my face you will not see, but my back you can. So on this word, there is a place with me. So Rashi brings the Gemara that says, Hu hamakom makom shalom. Aholam einu makomo. Classic paradox. He, meaning God, is the place of the world, but the world is not his place. Now, try to get your mind around that one. He is the place of the world, but the world is not his place. So that's why here we're getting to the essence of things. Because when we talk about the science of light, or you talk about the Kabbalah of light, they're really saying the same thing. But still, there's a, a question. If light is the best metaphor for godliness, then it follows that there must be something paradoxical about God and this we see in the in the whole creation of the world there's perhaps no paradox greater than the than the claim yesh mi'ayan." That God created the world something from nothing. And this has been a like a cardinal foundation of of faith. Yeshmi Ayan, something from nothing. So just those words themselves are it's like totally impossible. It's like, <laughs> like you can't even compute it. Something from nothing. Now it turns out that science has almost revealed the absolute truth of that statement. And that's in what's called the Big Bang. Because what science now says is exactly that. That there was a time, as it were, before time, but there was a, call it a situation that nothing existed and from somewhere this is this is the point where it's not exactly yeshmi Ayan, but it's as close as you can get that a infinitely small speck of matter explodes And the the Big Bang is the most mystical uh, idea you can think about. That everything in the universe, 10 billion galaxies, each one with billions of stars, each one hundreds, sometimes thousands of light years across, all of that came from an infinitely small speck of matter. So that's almost, a, see, but there is a speck there. So it's not purely yeshmi Ayan, but <clears throat> you just ask, well, where did this speck come from? <laughs> I use speck point, whatever you want to call it. So science can't go there. It's actually not even, right now, it's not in their capability and it's 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 they couldn't answer it anyways we can answer it and actually some of the greatest scientists in the world also have started to answer and now to say that there there, there is some force um, beyond what we can understand that must have set the whole thing in, in motion they have a very hard time saying God. But some of the greatest scientists in the world are now understanding that this if science deals with logic, where well, you just can't say that a speck just comes from nowhere. But we do say it comes from nowhere. And that's what we learned last week is that the state of existence before this world was called Ain Self. And Ain means nothing. Nothingness. But again, this is pure paradox. Like, it, like we're saying God is nothing, but God is everything. So the nothing encompasses the everything. So that's what, that's what I'm saying so is, is when we're trying to understand this pattern of light. It, we have to understand that it's emanating really from the paradox of, of within God, within, the paradox of God. And, and that's where it's coming from. That's where it's coming from. So now that we're talking about the ein Self his state of nothingness before creation. So we're told in Kabbalah that this ein Self is also called Or ein Self, the light, the infinite light. And here we also have the paradox. Well, is it nothingness, ein Self? or is it Or Ein-Soph? Which is it? And Basically, what Kabbalah presents is that, for all practical purposes, they're the same thing—the same thing. And the, and the the question in the like the deepest aspects of Kabbalah is: Is the light, the infinite light of God, is this the essence of God, or is this? a manifestation of God. In other words, no matter how exalted we can think the Or Ein Sof is, the infinite light is, does that make it that it's the essence of God? And so there's there's actually a huge debate within Kabbalah trying to define is it okay, we're getting to such um fine and subtle uh understandings of such incredibly profound concepts but they want to know is the light of god of god or is it from god the same question is asked about the soul is the soul a part of God, of God? Or is it a creation like all other creations? might be qualitatively uh, on a higher level than other creations, but it's a, it's a creation. And there are both of these ideas. The Hasidic uh, idea that the Baal Shem revealed is that the, the, this level of neshama is a chalak me'elokah mima'al mamash is an actual part of God above. This is one of the foundations of Hasidic thought. That the soul is an actual part of God. Not everyone subscribes to this. Others subscribe that it is a... An exalted creation of God, but it's like everything else in evolution, in a sense, it's it's a creation. Now, obviously, there's a, uh, a place where they they meet. Those two ideas. So even though what we're talking about is a, a very uh, ethereal. Ideas. It really gets down to identifying what our, our own soul is. Is it a part of God, or is it from God? It's a creation of God. Okay. So what we usually do, like we're like halfway through here, is we try to take these ideas and with the help of the music, to meditate on them. That's what we like to do. And so, if we bring together some of the thoughts, is that in, in Kabbalah and Hasidut, there are many different types of meditations on light. But like we said before, light... Is a state of consciousness. And so, just a very, very simple type of meditation is just to try to feel, as it were, one's own soul, to feel the spark of God that is in one's own soul. To understand that the the light of God really infuses all of reality. That's what we're going to see shortly. To see shortly. and actually, actually, I'm going to say it now because it's uh, this will help us. Love this. The next thing we're going to do is the science, but. In, in the Zohar, uh, it, it describes matter as thickened light. This is what it says in the Zohar. Physicality, the material world, is nothing more than thickened light.
1: Light jello.
0: Now, we're going to see in a second, we'll just jump to this quickly, we'll go back. But that's exactly what E equals MC squared says. E equals MC squared says matter is energy. What is matter? Thickened energy. What is energy? Light. So there's a place to see that there is nothing other than the light of God. That is what everything is. It just appears sometimes to be solid and to have form and to have colors and to have uh, <coughs> thickness and spatial dimensions, but when it gets down to it, the Zohar was a hundred percent right. That's an amazing statement, and they were a hundred percent right. Physicality is thickened light. So just one last thing, so this, the idea of the Big Bang is that everything that was, that ever, that everything that exists now, and everything that will exist because the universe is expanding at incredible speeds, it was all in this original um, point. But that's exactly what Kabbalah says. Kabbalah says that when God created the world, there had to be a symptom, a contraction, so that there would be a place, as it were, for, the, for a world. And then in the Zohar, 2,000 years ago, it says that God shone a single ray of light into the vacuum. And from this single ray of light, all that would ever be created came into existence. This is exactly what the Big Bang says. So this ray of light, this is the, the pattern that we saw that the sages intuited. Because This ray of light, it's physical light, but it's a purely spiritual light. It's an infinite light, but it's also a finite light, and it's a, uh, and it's it bridges those worlds. That's what light does. Light bridges heaven and earth. We just learned about the ladder in Yaakov's dream. It's, light is like a ladder that connects everything, because that is the nature of light. It hold, Like we said, God holds opposites. So light holds opposites. So this is a, a beautiful visualization to, to think of the world as all light. That's, that's what it is. That's what it is. Let's see now how what we've said all along that, that science is going to confirm this paradoxical nature of light. So first of all, until maybe a 100 years ago, 140 years ago, there was very little known about light from a scientific point of view, and the first thing that was discovered, is that electricity creates magnetism. And then within a short amount of time, they realized that magnetism creates electricity. And so here you have the first, the first of the opposites about light uniting into one force. That's why we call it the electromagnetic force. Because for all of history, they they knew about these forces, but no one ever suspected that they were actually the same force. So here already we have a source of our revealed, hidden, opposites paradox paradigm. But that was only the beginning. The next paradox about light is one of the most foundational Paradoxes of quantum physics today, and that is that when they first started understanding light, they understood it as a wave, that it operated in a wave fashion, and then in the early 1900s, they as as uh, instruments became uh, more fine and they could probe deeper and deeper levels of every dimension of science. The one of the uh, uh, phenomena that Einstein was first working with is they found that light also exhibited a uh, a nature of, of particles now in scientific terminology, something cannot be a wave and a particle at the same time. It's either a wave or a particle. They don't like they don't it's like oil and water. They don't they don't mix. And yet the more they did experiments, they started finding that sometimes and it depended on the experiment. Sometimes light it operates as a wave and sometimes as a particle. To, with all of the advances in science, which have been considerable—I mean, considerable—science does not understand this phenomenon. Now, what makes it? so interesting is that science has learned in an I- incredible way to harness this energy. Our, the whole modern world, I mean, can you imagine just taking away electricity? And like everything that would go with it? Like it's just like... Yes. like, like it would be, it's like... See the stars again. Whoa, it would, it's just like a different world. It's not like we couldn't exist. But it wouldn't be the same world that we... See, I wasn't born into it. I was born into electricity. My grandmother was not born into that world. In her lifetime, it went from like one world to another. But, but just in my lifetime... Uh, when, I was, when I was in my teens, there were no fax machines. There was no cell phones. There were no computers. There was no email. There was no chips. There was no... There was no satellite communications. There was, there was none of this. In fact, I was born, like, right when they um, discovered the TV. They made the TV. The first TVs were just coming out. So in my lifetime, it's just... Like we saw the first, you know, Sputnik go around the Earth for 90 minutes, right? Now they're sending them out of the solar system. People walked on the moon. But so we've learned to channel this energy. But if you ask the greatest scientists in the world, can you actually explain how Light can be a particle in a wave. It can't. It can't. So that's what I said before.
1: Why is it so complicated? I mean the, the ocean's full of waves and that it's all molecules of water.
0: Okay. Um, I yeah, don't know enough
1: scientifically yeah. to know why it's so complicated. I'm thinking in simple terms.
0: No, because it, it is complicated because when you get so that's looking at it on like a kind of like a gross not gross, but a like a, a macro yeah. level. But here we're talking on, on the way that light actually in, on the smallest levels atomic, molecular is working is that it's according to scientific principles something can't operate as a wave and a particle it's like it, it doesn't make sense they can't understand it. they can channel it they can channel it but they don't understand it and this is this is the basic paradox of life it was just like 30 years before they were like amazed to see that electricity uh, creates magnetism and magnetism creates electricity it was only because they started to have the the tools to check these things out before that, like I said, no one but 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 that's not considered um, mutually exclusive it's like two sides of the same coin And I I admit, I I cannot explain it, why it's such a problem. But it baffles so much so that the the famous test is called the, the double slit test. That they take individual photons. Now they could never do this before. And now they can. They can take individual photons. And they make two slits in, let's say, a screen. And then they have a screen behind it. So when photons are are operating individually, see so that's what they found out in the beginning. When they would measure light, it was measured as a wave. That's all they could perceive. It was measured by a wave. But see that's where the word quanta quantum physics comes from. Quanta means individual photons. Quanta means like bundles of energy. And in the early 1900s, they discovered that light, even though it might manifest as a wave, but it was really individual photons. So they did this experiment. They took two slits and they shoot individual photons through so it should be that when they show up on the screen on the other side they will manifest as individual photons because they're being shot one at a time with no relationship to any other photon but they found out and like I say Ata Until today, it it baffles science. But what happens on the screen is they make waves. They they, They make waves. Now, these are individual photons that are being shot individually and have no relation to any other photon. Yet when they show up on the screen on the other side, even when they wait minutes between shooting individual photons, they come out as a wave. And they can't understand this. They can't understand how this can be. How it can exhibit both properties. More than this, I suggest, if you have internet, Google. <laughs> Google. Google. Uh, The the Reality of Light as a Particle and a Wave, and read about it. Now, from that, uh, came out E equals mc squared. Part of understanding the connection between energy and matter which we said before is also a a tremendous mystery in a way when we say that everything is thick and light but still we experience the world as things are very solid and material and physical and yet science tells us it's true but it's really all just energy. It's all just energy. In fact, this table is ninety-nine point ninety-nine point ninety-nine percent empty space. That's a fact. It's it's almost completely empty space. What makes it a solid are the individual. Um, forces between the molecules that give it the, I wouldn't call it the illusion, but give it the reality of being solid. But it's not solid because it's full of molecules that are filling up the space. The space is actually almost virtually empty, virtually empty. But it's the forces between the molecules that create the solidity that we experience. So we have this incredible idea that energy equals matter, and matter equals energy. But then they found out it's not just light that has this paradoxical wave particle reality. It's all all matter, because since matter is energy, then every atom, every molecule, exhibits the same paradox. Now there's a a tremendous uh, three part Nova series based on the book, The Elegant Universe. Have you ever heard of the book, The Elegant Universe? There's a classic uh, explanation of the World Through the Eyes of Quantum Physics for the Layperson lay and uh, uh, by Brian Greene. And he says throughout the book, he says, like like the more we know, the more mysterious it is. The more mysterious. And he's one of the greatest living physicists today. Okay, then... That's this is the level of paradox that the sages were picking up on. But now we have another tremendous paradox about light, and that's its relationship to time. Because in the equation, E equals MC squared. E equals energy. The M is mass. And the C is the velocity of light. So in the relationship between energy and matter, light serves the same is the same bridge as we saw in the ray of light of Kabbalah. Light becomes the like the bridge between energy and matter. Now, the paradox that comes up is the following. Also, to the, to the bewilderment of science, light travels at a steady rate, 186,000 miles a second, and it never changes light always in relationship to other moving objects. Light will always be measured at the exact same rate. This already is like hardly makes sense. But look what happens when matter speeds up and approaches the speed of light, so time slows down. <coughs> that, for that matter. In other words, if you put a watch in a rocket ship and you send it around the earth speeding it, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of miles an hour, which is very small compared to the speed of light. But still, when it comes back, it will have a different time than an earth clock, because velocity affects time. When matter speeds up, time slows down. This already is like, doesn't make sense logically, but it's, that's the reality. That's the, the whole thing of the, the theory of relativity was based on this idea. The whole concept of all modern science is based very much on the theory of relativity, is that time is relative to the speed of light. So, so what's the paradox here? time to the light is a is a given it doesn't change but everything else in relationship to it is relative so there's there's a verse that approximates this idea it's anihasham lo shniti i am god I have not changed. I do not change. What
1: is the Hebrew word? Shaniti. Shen- Shaniti.
0: Yud, tough Yud.
1: In sign I don't you?
0: Yes. So here we have a bit of a paradox. God is the cause of all change, of all existence. And yet, God doesn't change. So this is very similar to the concept of of light, that light is steady. It doesn't change. And yet everything in relationship to it changes. This is, if you read the book um, Genesis and the Big Bang, so this is the, the, the main thesis. Uh, uh, of the book, in trying to explain how the universe could be both 15 billion years old and 6,000 years old and that they're both true. And he explains it through through understanding the relativity of time.
1: That explains jet lag.
0: Okay, so the last thing that we're going to do is um, actually, I think it's over there, um, the, the Hebrew letters book. I think I've seen it on that shelf before. Oh, good, good, thank you. Thank you. So now what we're going to do is, in short, we're going to look at the concepts of light in relationship to the Hebrew letters that make up the word or. And we're told that this is, in a sense, this is true of of everything. Everything is what the Hebrew letters that make it up are. So, if you look at the Aleph, Rav Gensberg calls it, Paradox God and man. So what's paradoxical about the Aleph is its numerical its numerical value is one. But look at the shape of it. Look at the shape of it. You have a classic shape of duality here. You have, according to tradition, a Yud above, a Yud below, and a Vav, which is called simultaneously connecting and dividing between the upper and the lower level. So this already is very paradoxical, because it's not one or the other, it's not connecting at the expense of dividing is that divided at the expense of connecting it's doing both simultaneously so here already in the form of the Aleph you have all of the paradoxes we've talked about in the actual form itself the the name of the letter is Aleph which also is the, the name of Elif, a thousand. Now in the Torah, there, thousand, is the way we use the word millions. Like, when you want to say like some number that expresses like this more than you can count, you say millions of. That's just the way we talk. Usually don't say billion; you say millions of. There are millions of this, and millions of that. But in the Torah, the word is Aleph. There is no word million. And there's there's ten thousands, but it's always thousands. So here you have again the paradox, that the number of Aleph is one, but the word itself means multiplicity, thousands, billions, trillions. Same, The same letter. Now, the why is it called the paradox of God and man? Is the, the above and below represents all the dualities in the world, really. That's why the next letter is bet, which is two. And the Torah begins with a bet. But the idea of the seeds of duality are already in the Aleph. It's within the oneness itself. That's the paradox. That is both one and manifold at the same time. So above these are what are called the upper waters and the lower waters. Remember in the second day of creation it said God divided between the upper waters and the lower waters and he put a rakia, a firmament, in the middle. So that's the shape of the olive. this idea of, of dividing. But it's also the idea of uniting. So all the opposites in the world... It's, just, it's only a matter of perspective. Sometimes we experience them as opposites and, and and division, and other times we experience them as as coming together and being unified. So the aleph of the word "or" represents all these dualities we've been talking about. I could. If we had more time to uh, develop it more, but let's just leave it at that. Now, it's it's also important to see that there's a vav here. Because the vav is the next letter of or, but it's already in the in the aleph. So when you go to the to the vav, so the vav is. Uh, envisioned as either a pillar or a person standing uh, upright. You can almost see the, the head here, uh, the neck and the head, and standing upright. But what does vav mean in a word? And you put the vav in front of a word, and. So a vav means a connector, it connects. Just in simple grammar, you put a vav, it's and. Now in the, the Mishkan, the tabernacle...
1: Would you say it's also an or? It's, it's an opposite?
0: It's an ah, okay, very good. Excellent. Wow, that's so good. That is so good. It also means something when you put a vav, sometimes it doesn't mean and, it means or. Which means now two things. Dividing between things, this or that.
1: Olaf. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Zep-o-zeh. Zep-o-zeh. Zep-o-zeh.
0: So, in the um, in in the Mishkan, the curtains were held together by vavim. That's what they're called. They were clasps, hooks. hooks. They hooked, the curtains were on the hooks. But Rav Ginsburg points out that here we have another uh, bit of a paradox here. That the, the, the hooks were on the pillars, and the curtains hung from pillar to pillar. So, the shape of the vav represents the pillars of the Mishkan, and the meaning of the word represents the hooks. So, he explains like this. He explains that the hooks were to put on the curtains in order to hide what was inside from someone standing outside. Someone standing outside sees the curtain, and what's on the other side of the curtain is hidden. The pillars, on the other hand, represent revealing, because they're not covered up. The pillars are not covered up. They're revealed. So here again, we have the reveal and hidden aspects of light that we saw in the beginning in all those different midrashim. Hidden and revealed, hidden and revealed. But the deeper understanding of the vav is, is an amazing thing. When we talked about the relativity of light. So uh, when we mentioned that time slows down when a when mass approaches the velocity, the speed of light and at the speed of light also this is a statement that they have shown to be true but is counterintuitive in every way is at the speed of light no time passes no time passes or past present and future are all happening at the same time Mm -hmm. Right, that's what we're getting to. Now that is the one of the understandings of the four-letter name of God. Yud and He and Vav and He are the four letters that make the words for past, present, and future. Hayah, Hova, Yiyah. That's what we say in Adonai Lam. who Hayah whova, the who ye, the He was, he is and he will be. But on a deeper level it means he was, is and will be all at the same time. That's what's called the secret of, of divine omniscience is that God knows the future before it happens. How can God know the future before it happens? For God, past, present, and future are all simultaneously. God does not experience time as linear. So how does that connect to the Vav? So in the Torah, there it's it's not in modern Hebrew, it's, it's a biblical phenomenon, that when you put a letter Vav, before a verb if the verb is written in the past you translate it in the future and if the word is a future grammatical form and you put this verb in front of it you translate it in the past now this is an amazing thing when you think about it it also like transcends logic. Why would the Torah be playing around with like past and future like this? It's because the, the, the Torah is eternal. The, the Torah is eternal. So this, we'll call it a mechanism by which the Torah is pointing out to us that it might say the past but it will manifest in the future. And if it's written in the future, it's because it happened in the past. And that's his Vav here. So the Vav is the beam of light. And what's interesting, because Einstein wrote that what inspired him to look into like the mysteries of the, of the universe was as, as a young boy and then as a teenager he had this this thought in his head, he couldn't get out of his head what would it be like to be riding on a beam of light? he had this like whatever this, this vision that he wanted to understand like, from a scientific point of view, if you could be on a beam of light, what would it be like? What would happen? And he came up with this most <laughs> astounding idea is that time doesn't pass. Now, if, if if you look into quantum physics, if you go, if you Google uh Uh, I don't know what you google like uh, counterintuitive ideas in quantum physics (laughs) the 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 amazing thing is this is exactly what Rod Ginsburg said before he said you would think the more Torah you knew how everything would become so clear he said no it becomes more paradoxical because that's the essence of, of life so quantum physics, you read anything about quantum physics and they're first to to admit that almost all the major uh, principles and concepts of quantum physics are counterintuitive. They defy logic. They defy logic until they prove them in the laboratory. And then it's like, So if, 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 if you read this book, Elegant Universe, or you read any, any book about quantum physics written for the layperson, it's just, it's just one paradox after another. So the more they know about the world, the more paradoxical it gets the opposite It' was like oh every, everything fits very nicely everything. In fact in the beginning Einstein rejected quantum physics. It was a, a, a pretty big mistake on his part. Why? Now this is the other big paradox that in the macro world, listen to this for a paradox. In the macro world, meaning when you're describing the world of big entities, the laws that Einstein described work to a T. But when you try to apply those same laws on the micro atomic level, they don't work. And the opposite. Then they came up with quantum physics. Quantum physics has all these counterintuitive ideas. They all work, they've all been proven on the molecular, the atomic level. You try to apply those same rules in the macro world, they don't work, they don't work. And so today, if you've heard of string theory, One of the reasons string theory came into existence was to try to solve this paradox. How can it be that you have rules of the universe that only work in little uh, uh, spaces, I don't know what else to say, and other rules that work in big space, and they they don't jive. They don't jive. So string theory came to try to solve this. And the only way they can solve it is by positing a world of 10 dimensions. And you can't can't solve it in a world of four dimensions. So they say the world isn't four dimensions. It's, It's 10 dimensions, 10 or 11
1: perfect fit with this. Don't forget to show me
0: the Resh. Yeah, the Resh. The last letter of light is a Resh. And here, and we're going very, very quickly here, is, first of all, if you remember what the Vav looked like, it's almost like a Vav that extends itself. Remember the, the Vav had like a little head over here, and here it just extends itself. So the, before Einstein, they thought that if you shot a ray of light into space, that it would travel in a straight line forever. But Einstein said, no. What will it do? It will curve. So that is the form of the Resh. Now, it starts as a straight line, like the Vav. But then it curves. And then it curves. Now, the other two important things about the Resh is Resh means beginning. Rosh Hashanah. Reshit. 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 So the resh of or is representing that not only all of light, but as we said, that all of physicality is just thickened light, or all of matter is energy. But if, if you talk about science, that it all began with the Big Bang. And if you talk about Kabbalah, it all came from the ray of light. But it's all from the beginning. In other words, everything connects back to the beginning. That's why you'll see in, in certain books, well, they, they say that our bodies are literally stardust. And they describe how the elements in the universe were created by star, by exploding stars. In the beginning of the universe, there were only a few elements. But then stars started to form. And then after X amount of years, they explode. But when they explode, they explode with newly formed elements. And so that all of matter, including our bodies, is stardust. And and in science they they they, they take that quite literally. <laughs> so with the light, everything goes back to the rosh, to the Resh, to bereshit. The other connection is what we said before, and which is so important that all expressions of light are expressions of of consciousness. So rosh along with meaning, beginning, also means head. It means intellect. So this is the dimension that is still to be revealed. We'll end with with this idea. Is that in the Sefer Yitzira, it talks about olam, shana, and nefesh when it's describing the dimensions of the world. So it talks about Olam, which is world, Shana, which means year, and Nefesh, which means soul. So the way it's explained is Olam means space, world means space, the three dimensions of space. Shana, year, means time, and only a hundred years ago did we come to understand that, that time can be envisioned as a dimension. It's called the time-space continuum. But what about nefesh? That's like the fifth dimension. So Sefer Yitzhiro says that, that consciousness is a dimension. And again, people should go and Google this. Google the role of consciousness in quantum physics. And what quantum physics is coming to understand is that consciousness plays a huge part in defining reality not just defining, in creating reality. And we don't have time to get into this, but this is a very, very new area in quantum physics. And it's it's an incredible idea. In uh, Gerald Schroeder's newest book called The Hidden Face of God, he explains, and it's really only come out in the last, a short amount of time that first we said matter is thick and light and then we talked about how science came to define it as matter is energy but now what science is starting to talk about in a very serious way is that matter Because the question is, well, what is energy? They say that matter is energy. So when they first said it, that was revolutionary. But now, like a hundred years later, it's like, okay, but what is energy? So now, science is talking about that energy is information. It's wisdom that energy is translated wisdom. So what do we say every morning? Kulam asita. Everything, speaking to God, everything in wisdom you made. Yeah. So science is now talking about Energy is also is like, just like matter is thickened energy, let's say. Energy is thickened intellect, consciousness. Again, science has a hard time going the next step. Well, who's consciousness? Where does this wisdom come from? Where, how is this information put into the universe? Science is a very hard time going the next step but we don't olam shana nefesh consciousness is a is a dimension it is the dimension where we said before that at the end of it all everything is the light of god That, in a sense, is all that exists. And this light of God takes on many, many, many different forms. So I'll I'll end with a a story of the Altar Rabbi, because this is the day after Yud Tet Bekislev, or Motzi Yud Tet Bekislev. And so it's told over that when the Altar Rabbi was on his deathbed. So he was looking up at the ceiling and the ceiling had these wooden beams. And he's staring at these wooden beams. And the 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 Hasidim could see that he wasn't like staring blankly. He was like staring like with deep intent. So they asked Rabbi, "What are you staring at?" And he he was, you know, very close to death at that point. And he said, he said now he said oh, he said now i don't see the wooden beams i only see the sparks of god I don't, truthfully i don't remember if he said the light of god or the energy of god he said but i only see the light of god that is animating the wooden beams so here you have matter, energy, and God. And that's, again, if you, if, you, if you look into this, this is an incredibly fascinating new idea in quantum physics of the role of consciousness in the, again, not just the defining of reality, but the actual creation of reality. So, I want to end with what we started with. That the the most important thing on Hanukkah is to sit by your Hanukkah lights and to contemplate the soul. Remember we said last week, Ner Hashem Nishmat Adam. This is the main verse to contemplate. The Candle of God is the Soul of Man. Ner Adam And to meditate, contemplate, think about these concepts that we've learned tonight, but also how they can uh, help us see the world in a better light, how we can take this light, remember we're, we're Either lighting outside or, or, or by our windows, because we want this light to shine into the world. That's the mission of the Jewish people to be or le goyim, to be a a, a a light into the nations, and to and to really feel this light. Now, just like the Egyptians could feel the darkness. We should like attempt to feel the light inside and it should bring us great joy and it should bring us close to Hashem, it should reveal inner places in our neshama that we didn't even know existed. And this light should shine into the world, there's a lot of darkness in the world. The world needs a lot of light. A lot of light. Okay, okay so we're to play one more. Yeah? Oh. oh, if people need to go... We're going to just play one more song. Oh, it's like, it's like, maybe we want, can I, think maybe yeah. one, uh, I should. Before okay. everyone runs out, if you could please just oh. make sure to uh, sign up on the sign-in sheet. And if you're able to, uh, the cost for tonight's class is 30 shekels. You need to give less, that's fine. If you'd like to give more, that's fine as well. And the sheet was open all throughout Hanukkah. So please, everybody, come, keep learning, join us uh, if you'll be here. If not, then come back
1: soon. I, the- I should call it probably.
0: Okay, thank you all for coming. Have a wonderful Hanukkah. Please, um, if anyone is interested, um, every Thursday night we have a Chumash here, not more than five minutes from here. If there's anyone here who I don't have their email or are not getting emails, um, please just give me a little piece of paper email. I'll put you on the list. But um, hopefully in in another month or so we'll have another series of classes here. All year long we're going to have a series of classes, but it's not going to be every Tuesday, but in, in series. Okay.
1: On your email yeah. had
0: a picture of a book about Oh, so, about uh, so right here, oh. thank you. If anyone's interested, they just came out. The, um, the, book, the, the light book is 60 shekel, the reincarnation book is 75. Substantially cheaper than in the stores. If anyone is interested? Okay.
1: Sure. Oh, sure this oh, okay. what's this? Yeah. If I wanted to like toss one about this class but they made it because like, they weren't here, are they able to go online and see? Yeah,
0: to go on oneg.tv
1: yeah.
0: and just search uh, Slomo and all of we record all the classes so a like lot every day, so there's like all the different classes that are on there. And Oneg uh, TV? Oneg.tv? Oneg.tv. Oneg.tv. Yeah. I can remember that. Yeah. And, uh Oneg.tv. Right sure. the oh okay.
1: At 8
0: o'clock.